Good morning. I imagine you've heard by now that our pastor had another emergency eye surgery. Uh, Friday, I believe it went well, and he's at home recovering as far as we know, so keep praying for Pastor Paul. If you're a guest with us today, again, welcome. For the past few weeks, we've been walking through 2 Timothy. As we know, 2 Timothy was the last letter the Apostle Paul ever wrote. This letter was to young Timothy. Uh, this letter encouraged Timothy and challenged him in the faith to carry out his calling. Uh, but the truths we see in 2 Timothy apply also to the church today. So today we'll uncover some of these uh, truths. Uh, we'll pick up today in 2 Timothy 1.13. We'll go through chapter 2, verse 2. And that verse, as you probably know, is about discipleship. So as the discipleship pastor, I'm thankful to be able to preach this message. And my prayer is that we leave here today with a, a renewed passion and a renewed excitement about being engaged in the Great Commission. So let's pray to that end as we begin. Father, today I pray that your word would go forth in power, challenge us, convict us, encourage us. I ask that you would renew our passion collectively as a church to carry out the Great Commission, which is the mission of every true church, including ours. I give us wisdom as a church to do that effectively and faithfully. Uh, we thank you for the privilege that we get to join you in the most important work there is, kingdom-impacting work of the Great Commission. So may we not take that word for granted. Uh, we do pray for our pastor that he would recover well from his eye surgery. We know that he's a, it's got to be a frustrating situation, so grant him peace, grant him encouragement, bless his soul. I pray this morning you would bless our souls. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So picking up in 2 Timothy 1, verse 13, Paul tells young Timothy, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So in those two verses, we see a double exhortation Paul gives to Timothy. The first exhortation, verse 13, Follow the pattern of the sound words you have heard from me, Paul tells Timothy. Second exhortation, he says, guard the good deposit entrusted to you, verse 14. So the question is for us, what is that good deposit? Well, I believe that good deposit is the gospel. It's the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And notice both of these expressions Paul uses describe the gospel. So the gospel, verse 13, is a pattern of sound words. And the gospel, verse 14, is a good deposit. Um, we know that when we share the gospel, we can't do it without words, okay? So the gospel is a pattern of sound words. And the gospel, I think the word good is an understatement. The gospel is really the, the best deposit there is. All right, so the gospel is both sound words and a good deposit. And we know that the gospel is the power unto salvation, unto transformation, unto glorification. In uh, my class last week at Providence, I teach 11th graders over there, and I actually had them define the gospel and then present it. It's a rhetoric class. We work on persuasive communication through speaking and writing. And so one of the things I said to them was, if, if you don't define the gospel, Satan will define it for you. That's the reality. You know, if Satan can twist and distort the gospel, he will. If he can cause the gospel to lose the power unto salvation, he will. And again, that's why Paul tells Timothy, this applies to all of us, we have to guard the gospel. You know, Satan will use what you don't know against you. 
That's true in general, but that's especially true for the gospel. If you don't know the gospel, Satan's going to give you a false gospel that doesn't lead to salvation but leads somewhere else. So we have to know the gospel and guard it, Paul tells Timothy. We can't effectively guard a gospel we, we don't know. So the gospel is essentially the good news that Jesus did for you and me what we can't do for ourselves. We've sinned against holy God. Uh, we deserve eternal damnation as a result. Uh, we need a Savior. We cannot save ourselves. But the good news is God loves you and me so much. He sent a Savior, and that Savior is, of course, Jesus. John three sixteen. God so loved the world he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So Jesus accomplished our salvation through his perfect life, sacrificial death, and resurrection. Now through him we can be restored to God. Jesus bridged the gap between sinful man and holy God. Paul says in Romans 6.23, salvation is a gift. He says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But that gift is not automatic. We have to actually respond to the gospel by faith. Paul also said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So we respond to the gospel by repenting from our sin believing that Jesus is who he says he is, and then committing, as Abram just did, to follow Jesus the rest of our days. So this gospel was the gospel that turned the world upside down. This gospel was the gospel that Jesus gave to the Apostle Paul. It was the gospel that Paul gave to Timothy. And it was the gospel that Timothy passed on to faithful men. And I've said this to you before. One of my favorite authors is a guy named Bill Hull. He's a discipleship enthusiast. And he said, this phrase kind of stuck with me, he said, the gospel that you believe will determine the disciples that you make. The gospel you believe will determine the disciples you make. So when we talk about discipleship, we have to back up and make sure we have the right gospel. Uh, so Paul says, Timothy, make sure you have the right gospel, guard the gospel, and then later on he talks about discipleship. So the gospel we believe will determine the disciples we make. We cannot make a Christ-like disciple with a distorted, twisted, broken gospel. You know, the Pharisees of Jesus' day had a gospel. They made disciples. And Jesus told them, you're making disciples of hell. Uh, we, we don't want to do that. We have to have the right gospel. So today, the gospel has been deposited to the church, to this church. You have been given stewardship, as Paul says, of the gospel message. Now it's up to us to guard it. But the good news is, as we guard it, we're not on our own. So Paul tells Timothy explicitly, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So the Holy Spirit within us illuminates the gospel so that we can understand it. All the while, Satan tries to twist and manipulate and distort the gospel. So there's kind of a battle going on. You know, who, who's going to win that battle? Well, the good news is we are. The Holy Spirit within you is greater than the spirit of the enemy. And that's what the Spirit does. He illuminates the gospel so we can understand it, guard it, protect it. I don't need to remind you that the Apostle Paul ferociously guarded the gospel. You read his letters, he's constantly warned against false teachers. In Galatians 1.9, he said, let false teachers be damned. That's the strongest language against the biggest threat to the church, distortion of the gospel. So what we see in 2 Timothy 1 verse 15 probably was a great discouragement to the Apostle Paul. Paul shares with Timothy this. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. 
Now, we don't know anything about these two people, Phagellus and Hermogenes, other than they're mentioned here as the ringleaders of leading people in Asia away from the gospel. They're leading people to desert the gospel that Paul had shared with them. So this broke Paul's heart. A few years earlier, we know that Paul spent two and a half years in Ephesus, part of Asia, and we read in Acts 19.10, Luke says, All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, and many believed. So now we get to 2 Timothy, we read, All in Asia turned away from the gospel. So that's got to be discouraging for the Apostle Paul. Now, all does not mean literally every single one. Timothy, for example, uh, was living in Asia. So all is not literal, but all would include a lot of people. So many people in Asia were led away from the gospel by Phagellus and Hermogenes, pawns of Satan himself. People that Paul loved and shared the gospel with were now deserting him and even slandering him. So Paul's message to Timothy was this, Don't be like Phagellus and Hermogenes. Stand with me, stand firm in the gospel, suffer for the gospel if that's what it takes. Now, Paul could have been tempted if he had little faith to think the gospel's heading to extinction. You know, I went to Asia, I shared the gospel, and everybody's turning away from it. You know, he could have been tempted to, to give up. But Paul was a man of great faith. He didn't give up. Uh, Paul knew that Jesus would build his church, that the gospel Paul was sharing uh, would lead to the church being built. You know, in light of the parable of the sower, Paul went to Asia, spread the gospel seed, Uh, Many seeds seemed to sort of spring up, um, but most of these people fell in the category of the seed uh, that sprang up and then was scorched by the sun. Or as Matthew says it, the evil one came and snatched away what was sown in the heart. But all the while, Paul was a man of faith. He did not despair. And actually, when we get to verses 16 through 18, we see a bright spot. Verse 16, Paul says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So in verse 15, we saw Paul being deserted, the gospel being deserted. Now in verses 16 through 18, we see Paul being encouraged by a faithful saint named Onesiphorus, uh, who was a model of Christian kindness and encouragement. He wasn't ashamed of the gospel. In fact, he earnestly searched for Paul so that he could encourage him in the gospel. And once he found him, he kept returning again and again to encourage Paul as he was in prison. Paul said, he often refreshed me. And this wasn't just physical refreshment. This was a refreshment for Paul's soul. You know, Paul was in prison for his faith, so any visitor of Paul would have been probably in a lot of danger, but that didn't stop Onesiphorus. He continued to visit uh, frequently, and he didn't abandon the Apostle Paul, even when Paul was in that situation. You know, think about your own life. Do you have brothers and sisters in the faith who, when you're at your lowest, are there to encourage you, refresh your soul? If so, praise God for that. That's a gift from God. So Paul so much appreciated Onesiphorus that he offered up a prayer for him. He said, May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord, on that day so we see here that Paul was a scholar he was a preacher he was a missionary but he was a very relational person Uh, he knew the value of godly friendships in the final chapter of Romans Paul's closing uh, comments include 33 names 
So Paul prayed for his friends by name constantly, knowing they were gifts of grace. Ephesians 6.18 tells us that Paul was a man who always kept on praying for all the saints. And that should be a reminder for us to always keep on praying for the saints. So to sum up that section, Paul basically gave two motivational examples. One was a negative example of what not to do. Don't be like Hermogenes and Phagellus. Instead, be like Onesiphorus, who was a godly example. Don't desert the gospel. Stand firm in the gospel. Live the gospel. Risk everything for the gospel. Stand boldly for Jesus, even when it causes you to be at risk. And of course, that applies to us today. Jesus said in Matthew 10, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So think about your life, your context. What does it look like for you to stand boldly for Jesus at home, at work, as you go about your day? What does it look like for you to stand firm in Christ? If you acknowledge Jesus, it'll be worth it because one day he'll acknowledge you before the Father. Now we arrive at verse 1 of chapter 2. Paul says to Timothy, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And I'll pause there. So notice here, Paul is not telling Timothy, be strong in and of yourself. You know, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, grit your teeth. You have everything you need in and of yourself. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul's telling Timothy, the resources you need for life are not found in yourself. They're found in the grace of Jesus Christ. You know, the grace of God is not just for salvation, it's for daily living. The same grace that forgives us and makes us holy empowers us day by day to carry out God's will, God's plans. We know we can't do anything meaningful apart from Christ. He's our strength. His grace is our strength. That's why Paul said things like, I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he works powerfully within me, Colossians 1.29. He said in Philippians 2, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Galatians 2.20, Paul said, It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul said, By God's grace I am what I am. If you've read Paul's letters, he opens a lot of them by saying grace to you. And that's the Christian life. God's grace coming to you in Christ through his word by his spirit. One of my favorite pastor theologians you probably know by now is Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon wrote a book entitled All of Grace. Do you know what his main point in that book was? You guessed it. The Christian life is all of grace. That's all it is. God's grace coming to us in Christ. Now, if you know Spurgeon, he was an insanely productive person. He pastored a huge church. Uh, he wrote lots and lots of books. He had a seminary. He had an orphanage. And so one day, a man named David Livingston asked Spurgeon, basically, how are you doing everything that you're doing? And Spurgeon's clever response was, you have forgotten there are two of us. And that was his point. It was God working in him, both to willing to work for his good pleasure. So God's grace applies what we need to endure. The Christians who make an eternal difference in this world are those who have learned to rely on God's strength, God's grace, not their own. So in verse 1, Paul tells Timothy, don't be timid, be strengthened by the grace that is yours in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 2, Paul tells Timothy the kind of ministry he's to do as a result of this grace. So remember, Paul's already told Timothy, guard the gospel. Now in verse 2, we see 
how Timothy will guard the gospel, and that is by passing it on. So Timothy's not guarding the gospel by keeping it to himself. He guards it by passing it on to faithful men. So Paul says, verse 2, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now you probably know there's four generations of discipleship in one verse right there. So the gospel that Paul received from Jesus, Paul gives to Timothy. And he tells Timothy, pass it on to faithful men who will do the same, way, same thing with others. So four generations of discipleship in one verse. And thankfully that chain of gospel continuation was unbroken. And that's why the gospel made it to you and me. Because of the faithful men and women that have gone before us. So despite the large number of defectors in Asia, apparently there were still a few faithful men that Timothy could pass on the gospel to. Obviously, this command to pass on the gospel is not just for men. Um, in another pastoral epistle, Paul told Titus, older women are to train younger women. So when we talk about discipleship, that's for all believers. So Paul is saying, make it your aim in discipleship to invest in faithful men and women. In other words, you want a return on your investment. Don't invest in somebody where it's going it's to stop there. You want to invest in people that you know will invest in others, right? I had a membership meeting last Thursday with uh, Ash Landry. Is Ash here today? If you don't know Ash, there he is. You need to know Ash. Uh, so Ash is a prospective member. And as we met, um, it became clear that Ash is a product of discipleship. He mentioned that he is where he is today because of the faithful men who have invested in him. One of those is our own Kimahon over here. So Ash is a product of discipleship. I'd imagine a lot of you are too. And I love what Ash said. He was talking about, uh, you know, just being around faithful men. And he said, I don't want to be discipled just one hour a week. I want to be discipled 24-7. Amen, brother. I hope that's all of our desire. So Ash wanted what Jesus' disciples got, being with Jesus 24-7. All right. <laughs> so the discipleship that you've received God intends for you to pass on to others and that's what Paul is talking about here in 2 Timothy 2 verse 2 so you probably noticed you haven't filled in any blanks yet well that's about to change so take your pens out <clears throat> in the time we have left I want to look at some practical tips and realities about discipleship and about mentoring so let's begin with the necessity of mentoring we are commanded to make disciples so the great commission is not a suggestion in other words it's a commandment you, know, you as a Christian don't have the option to, to opt out of the great commission it's a commandment for all believers you know Jesus says you know why would you call me Lord yet not do what I tell you to do well he told us to make disciples you know sometimes we overcomplicate discipleship but I believe it's actually pretty simple if you look at the Great Commission in Matthew 28, there's really four things that discipleship requires. So discipleship means going. You know, Jesus, our Lord, left heaven, came to earth on a rescue mission to save sinners. So Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you to go. All right, so the first thing disciples do is they go, whether it's across the street, across the cubicle, or across the globe. Disciples take initiative and they go like Jesus did. And as they go, uh, they tell. They tell the gospel. They tell the good news of the gospel, knowing that the gospel is the power unto salvation. And as they go and tell the gospel, if by God's grace somebody responds to the gospel, 
Then, in light of the Great Commission, you baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just like we saw this morning with Abram. All right, so disciples go, and we go with the gospel. We tell the gospel, and if by God's grace somebody responds to the gospel, we baptize them, and then begins the hard work. Then we actually train them to observe all that Christ commanded. That's essentially what discipleship is. Go tell the gospel, make converts, train them to follow Jesus, all that Christ commanded. That's the essence of the Great Commission. The next thing we need to know about discipleship is that everyone is discipled by something or someone. Pastor Mark Dever said, to be human is to be a disciple. God did not present Adam and Eve with a choice between discipleship and independence, but between following him and following Satan. We are all disciples. The only question is, of whom? So we're all following someone. If you believe Ephesians chapter 2, you're either following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, Satan, or you're following Jesus. Those are the two options. There is no neutral ground. You're following Jesus or you're following Satan. We're all disciples. The only question is, who are we following? And as we engage in disciple-making, we also need to know that we live in a world that is increasingly ignorant or even opposed to truth. You know, we live in a world that says truth is relative. You know, it's true for you, it's true for you, it's true for me, it's true for me. Everybody has their own truth. The only problem is truth is objective. The only truth is God's truth revealed through his word, revealed through Christ. It's only God's truth that sets us free. It's only Jesus that sets us free. Another reminder about discipleship is that the Christian faith is necessarily relational. As we move on in 2 Timothy, we'll see that Timothy is charged to, to preach the gospel. But here in verse 2, chapter 2, Paul's telling Timothy that he needs to be relational. He's not just preaching the gospel. He's actually investing in men, spending time with men. It's a relational ministry. So Paul tells Timothy, your ministry is not just getting up and speaking. Your ministry is being relational with other believers. And that's essentially what Jesus did. You know, he spoke to the crowds here and there, but he spent 90% of his time investing in a handful of men, 12 men. Then he told them to go and do likewise. And that was his plan A to get the gospel to you and me. And that plan obviously worked. Here we are today. Uh, so yes, in ministry there may be times you speak, preach to crowds, but it's mostly just being relational, investing in men and women, and telling them to go and do likewise. Again, the Great Commission is connected to the Great Commandment. The Great Commission requires us to love people, and we can't really love people if we're not spending time with them in relationships. And that leads to the next point. We all need help in faithfully following Christ. Disciple-making is not a Lone Ranger mission. Uh, we can't do it alone. And this is where all those biblical one-another commands come into play. Love one another, serve one another, instruct one another. Pray for one another, confess your sins to one another. God designed us, the church, to help each other, to spur one another on in the faith. So we can't do discipleship by ourselves. We need each other. We're not self-sufficient. So if you're here today and you want someone to disciple you, here are some practical tips for finding a mentor. One, you want to find a mentor who has a firm grasp of and high regard for the truth. Again, you don't, you don't want to be discipled by someone who has their own subjective truth. You want to be discipled by someone who holds God's word, God's truth, in the highest esteem, in the highest regard. 
and that person is to teach you that truth. To find a mentor who not only knows the truth, but who can explain and demonstrate how to put truth into practice. In other words, you want a doer of the word, not just a hearer of the word. Now, you're not going to find a perfect mentor, but you need to find someone who their life is a pattern of obeying Christ to the best of their abilities. You want to find a mentor who will care for you as a son or daughter, affirming, encouraging, guiding, and correcting you in love. And that's what we see with Paul and Timothy. Paul views Timothy as a child in the faith. He encourages Timothy, challenges Timothy, loves Timothy. You want to find a mentor who lives a life worthy of imitating. Paul urged the Corinthians, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. So find a mentor who can say with integrity, you follow me, you imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now for those of you here today who maybe want to be that mentor in addition to these things I've just listed, um, here's some things you also need to know. You need to be a mentor who is a learner as well as a teacher. A learner as well as a teacher. You need to commit as a mentor to be a lifelong learner. You're never going to learn everything you need to know. You gotta, there's got to be a pattern of lifelong learning. You commit to maintain a posture of humility, knowing that you don't know it all. You need to continue to grow and learn. So the best teachers are lifelong learners. Also, you should be a mentor who applies the truth to life. You know, I've said this before, but the, built com- the Great Commission has built-in accountability. You cannot effectively train people to follow the commands of Christ if you are not following the commands of Christ. So again, be a mentor who actually lives out the commands of Christ, applies the truth to life. It's hard to maintain a pure conscience as a mentor if you're living as a hypocrite. Also, be a mentor who allows and invites others to see you up close. And again, that's essentially what Jesus did. He invited his disciples to be with him basically all the time, everywhere he went. They saw Jesus up close. It wasn't just a one-hour structured meeting every week. So as a mentor, invite your mentee to see your life up close. All right, also be a mentor who relies on the Holy Spirit. As a mentor, you don't want to come across as somebody who's self-sufficient. That's actually the opposite of what you're shooting for. Your mentee needs to see your life and see that you are weak and helpless without the Holy Spirit, without Christ. Apart from the Spirit, you can do nothing. While we're on the subject of being a mentor, have you ever considered that maybe the greatest contribution of your life here on planet Earth could be investing your life in a mentee's life? Now for some advice for mentees. If you're looking to be a mentee, you have to be a mentee who is teachable. If you're not teachable, you're going to prevent effective discipleship. You also have to be a mentee who is humble. Again, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Discipleship is a means of God's grace. It requires humility. Next, be a mentee who values the process. Discipleship is hard work. It's long work. It's slow work. Eugene Peterson said it's a long obedience in the same direction. So our culture wants instant gratification, immediate results, but discipleship can't be rushed, it can't be hurried. Bill Hull said the formation of character to the person of Christ can't be hurried, it's a slow work, and it can get very messy, 
People fail, delay, make mistakes, resist, and are afraid. It's a slow work, so it can't be hurried, but it's an urgent work, so it can't, can't be delayed. So as you read scripture, maturity doesn't happen in a day, a week, a month, or even a year. It happens over a lifetime. So discipleship is a lifetime process. Uh, the journey of discipleship is the destination. So you have to value that process, be patient. And also as a mentee, uh, you do not need to be defensive. You know, as a mentee, you know, meet with a mentor, you know, naturally, your sin is going to be exposed. Don't be defensive. Acknowledge it. Repent from it. You know, defense, being defensive is going to prevent what God wants to, to do in your life. And finally, be a mentee who is willing to pay it forward. You know, if discipleship is obeying all the commands of Christ, one of his commands was to, to reproduce, to, to pay it forward. So discipleship is not complete until the mentee becomes the mentor. That's the process Jesus set into place. So finally, your last blank, a simple conclusion. Find someone. Find someone to mentor you, or you find someone to mentor. Now, thankfully, at Calvary, I would imagine a lot of you are already involved in discipleship. You're already being mentored. Or you're already mentoring. Praise God for that. But I also imagine there's some of you here today who have never really engaged in discipleship. If I did a poll and said, how many of you have ever been discipled? You know, probably a lot of you haven't. And that could cause some intimidation. Um, you know, discipleship requires vulnerability, humility, time. It can be a scary thing to get started, started with, but it's worth it. And I want to share this, let this be your confidence. So the Great Commission, Jesus had the command to make disciples, but that command was bookended by two promises. So Jesus says in verse 18 of Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus says, all authority is mine. He said, based on that authority, I'm authorizing you to make disciples. And he said in verse 20, as you make disciples, I am with you always. In other words, as you engage in discipleship, you're doing it by the authority of Christ and you have the very power of Christ. That should give you confidence. All right. We've been authorized by Jesus himself to do this. And I also want to remind you that the Great Commission is really the great privilege. In our open class this morning, we talked about God is sovereign. If he wanted to, he could accomplish his purposes by himself. But by his grace, he allows you and me to participate in the work he wants to do here and now on this earth. Right? And there's no greater privilege than that. And for those of you engaged in discipleship, you know that the, really the most fulfilled you'll ever be is when you're doing what God's commanded you to do. God's commands are not burdensome. God's commands lead to the abundant life Jesus came to give, and that includes the command to make disciples. And you may say, well, if I get engaged in discipleship, that's going to require some sacrifice on my part. You're exactly right. And that's a good thing. You know why? Because in Romans 12, 1, God says, offer up your bodies as living sacrifices. All right? So that there's a win-win. Through discipleship, you're offering your body up as a living sacrifice. And in my position as discipleship pastor, I want to make sure you have everything that you need to engage in discipleship. You know, if you're... Uh, kind of nervous about it, I'll, I'll put a curriculum in your hand that tells you exactly what you can do, okay? I want you to have all the tools you have so that you have no excuse to not engage in discipleship. Because in the end, there's no excuse that's going to measure up in the face of God of why you didn't make disciples. You can imagine one day you're face to face with God and you tell him, I chose not to obey the Great Commission because that's not going to measure up. 
parents, discipleship begins in the home and goes outward from there. Maybe the greatest thing you'll do in this life is to raise up kids and send them out into a dark world as flaming arrows against the kingdom of darkness. And I'll close with this. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So the next question is, okay, well, how do we do that? Jesus gave the best answer to that question. In John 15, 8, he said, My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. That's how we glorify God. So God's ultimate plan for his children is to bring glory to his name as disciples of Christ. When God brings history to an end, the only cause that's going to matter is the cause of the Great Commission, the cause of discipleship. Author Greg Ogden said, I can only hope and pray that a century from now, if Christ has not returned, when the church historians study the time in which we live, that it will be called an age of discipleship. That's my prayer for us here at Calvary, that we'll take Jesus' last words and make them our first work all the time. All right, so I'm going to close in prayer. If you need to respond to this message in any way, uh, there'll be some folks down front if you want us to pray with you. But maybe your best response is just to commit to God right now. I'm going to re-engage in discipleship. I'm going to engage in discipleship. If you need help with that, let me know. I'll be glad to help any way that I can, okay? Let's pray. God, thank you for the privilege we have as your people to be involved in the Great Commission. Uh, We know that as a sovereign God, if you wanted to, you could accomplish your purposes all by yourself. But by your grace, you allow us to participate with you in this Great Commission. Uh, We know that your commands are not burdensome. Your commands are designed to bring life and purpose and hope and fulfillment. So I pray that we as a church will find fulfillment and hope and purpose as we live out the Great Commission. Uh, We thank you for your grace towards us in Christ. Thank you for the the grace of Jesus that strengthens us. Uh, We acknowledge as a church we cannot do anything meaningful apart from you and your power and your strength. So I pray that uh, both individually and as a church we would abide in you, remain in you, and that as a result we we will bear much fruit and so prove to be your disciples. Uh, May we as a church guard the gospel, know it, protect it, guard it by passing it on to faithful men and women who will do likewise. Uh, so that in 10, 20, 30, 100 years, the gospel will continue. We thank you for all those that came before us, uh, men and women of faith, who guarded the gospel and passed it on so that we can have it today. We thank you that uh, we know there's billions of people on this planet that don't have the gospel, that haven't received it. But by your grace, Calvary Baptist Church here in Dothan, Alabama, we have received the gospel. We're now stewards of the gospel. So may we as a church be found faithful in guarding it and passing it on. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.